Please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Our passage for this morning is 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. Again, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. And let's begin our time by reading this passage together. The Apostle Paul writes, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make the members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God and your body. A couple of years ago, I was rereading a book that had made a strong impression on me uh, early in my Christian walk. And in the process, I came across a quote that has since become one of my favorite. The book was Words to the Winners of Souls by Horatius Bonner. It's a book written to encourage evangelistic zeal. And in the beginning, as Bonner writes about the importance of sincerity in the evangelist, he writes this. Men cannot but feel that if religion is worth anything, it is worth everything. That if it calls for any measure of zeal and warmth, it will justify the utmost degree of these. And that there is no consistent medium between reckless atheism and the intensest warmth of religious zeal. Men may dislike, detest, scoff at, persecute the latter. Yet their consciences are all the while silently reminding them that if there be a God and a Savior, a heaven and a hell, anything short of such life and love is hypocrisy, dishonesty, and perjury. The reason why I love that quote so much is not only because I think it so succinctly describes perhaps the greatest problem facing the American church today, which is a lack of sincerity in their worship, a Laodicean lukewarmness, which only serves to undermine the gospel message we proclaim. But because I think it also reminds us that what we believe about Christ is supposed to radically transform literally everything about us. To go back to the quote that I shared with you the last time we were in this passage, it reminds us that what we believe about God really is the most important thing about us. I can remember making this realization even as an unbeliever, just as Bonner describes it. I can remember wrestling over the idea of God and recognizing that if God is real, meaning if He exists, then it means that logically He must be at the center of everything. There could be no higher object of contemplation, no more worthwhile thought for us to spend our time on. The greatest joy that we could ever possibly experience had to be in knowing Him. I could remember realizing that if God is real, and if He was the creator of everything, the source of everything, then it had to mean that everything had to conform to Him. It had to conform to His wishes, to His desires. After all, there really is no frame of reference for right or wrong, good and bad, better or worse, apart from God. 
So nothing within the creation can say to him, this is how things ought to be, since they're all an expression of his work, of his mind. We would be sequentially, and therefore I think you could say logically, after God. And that would mean that he has the right to define us, not the other way around, meaning we would find our definitions in him, and so we would need to look to him to be able to even understand the world around us. We wouldn't even rightly uh, interpret what we see in the world without first, first asking him how to define it for us. This, of course, meant that what I believed about God would become the most important thing about me. And whether to accept or reject Jesus Christ as Lord had to be one of the most important decisions I would ever make. This morning's passage is one of those texts that illustrates Bonner's point. It shows us that what we believe about Christ is supposed to radically transform literally everything about us. And I don't know about you, but this is one of the things that I really love about our faith. Ours is not a faith that's confined to Sunday morning. Ours is not a faith that's confined to our formal expressions of worship. Rather, we can express our delight in God always, in everything we do. We worship God at the breakfast table and in the boardroom and even, as we'll see, in the bedroom. Literally every aspect of our lives is shaped by what we believe about Jesus Christ, including even our sexuality. In order to understand what's happening in this text, it's probably a good idea to take a moment to review what's taking place in Corinth as Paul writes this letter. Uh, you'll recall that Paul writes this letter in response to some questions that the Corinthians have submitted to Paul in his absence. Paul, of course, planted the Corinthian church. We learn of that event in Acts 18. Uh, Paul initially spent over a year and a half at Corinth evangelizing these believers, seeing them built up in their faith before he finally made his way back to his sending church, the church of Antioch. When Paul writes this letter, he's returned to the region. He's in the city of Ephesus, about 250 miles away across the Aegean Sea. And perhaps as much as two and a half years has passed. It would seem that there's been at least one letter exchanged between Paul and the Corinthians by the time Paul writes 1 Corinthians. And what we discover very early on in this letter is that the Corinthians have not exactly been quick to receive Paul's counsel. Paul has begun to discern the root of this resistance. And what it basically comes down to is a kind of pride, which, interestingly enough, is rooted in the Corinthians' understanding of grace. There's really a lot that could be said here, but most basically, the Corinthians not only think of themselves as special objects of God's grace in terms of their giftedness, but even more than this, they've come to think that their relationship with Christ makes them immune to any kind of corrective action from God. Or to put it another way, it's a kind of error that's not uncommon among many young Christians, especially among intellectually sharp young Christians, and that's to confuse theological understanding with spiritual maturity. That's more or less where the Corinthians seem to be. They think that because they possess an abundance of what you and I might call the knowledge gifts, that they don't necessarily need to listen to a guy like Paul. And it's this pride that's actually leading them into greater and greater theological error, uh, chiefly this misapplication of grace that we've seen Paul begin to pick apart in chapters 5 and 6, where at least some of the Corinthians have come to the conclusion that grace means that it doesn't matter what they do now that they're in Christ, since the blood of Christ covers all their sin. Now, it's not quite as simple as that, since, as we'll see at the beginning of chapter 7, there also appear to be Corinthians on the other side of this spectrum. They've taken this idea of knowledge or understanding to another extreme, wherein they almost seem to be adopting a kind of religious asceticism. If you remember what we saw back in chapter 1 is that there's these different schools of thought 
that have developed in Corinth, which are modeled after what they believe are the strength of various Christian teachers, well, it would appear that some have taken the opposite approach to what we find in chapters 5 and 6. They think knowledge is revealed in what they abstain from, uh, which is actually another kind of error that Paul often encounters and confronts. Uh, in 1 Timothy 4, he even explicitly warns Timothy about this type of error. So there are Christians on both sides of the spectrum here, and what's really interesting is that they don't seem to have fractured yet over this issue. As we get deeper into this text, I think we'll see why this is the case, and we'll see that it's rooted in the fact that both sides are actually making the same theological error, but with vastly different applications. In other words, I don't know that you can say that this is quite as simple as the Corinthians thinking they can just live however they want, but I think we can at least say that this is how they're thinking with respect to particular kinds of sin. There are some kinds of sins that they think they're now free to participate in based off of what Christ has accomplished at the cross. So if I could put it this way, grace and knowledge. These are the two themes that Paul seems to be trying to set straight at this point in the letter. He's trying to correct the Corinthians' understanding of grace. He's trying to help them see that grace does not mean that they're uh, free to engage in sexual impurity with impunity. And he's trying to correct their understanding of knowledge, of Christian maturity. Again, you could say that pride is really the root issue, but this is a pride that's emerging from the Corinthians' misunderstanding of grace and knowledge. Basically, it's because they misunderstand these concepts that they're being led to think that they're more mature than what they really are. Once again, in this morning's passage, Paul is confronting the misapplication of these concepts uh, to sexual immorality specifically. And in our last message, we saw Paul tackle the Corinthians' misapplication of grace to this topic. The Corinthians seem to be saying, you know, it doesn't really matter what you do with your body. Sexual immorality doesn't really matter since the blood of Christ covers all our sins. All things are now lawful for me. To which Paul answers, verse 12, True, but not all things are helpful. Not all things are profitable. I will not be enslaved to anything. Basically, he affirms the fact that it's true. The Christian doesn't necessarily lose their status before God on account of their sin, since through their union with Christ, they really are already righteous before God. Even still, he says, that doesn't mean that we should sin with impunity. Since, he explains, sin still isn't profitable. He explains that it actually works counter to the Christian's desires. And so to, to continue in sin, even after our justification, that isn't freedom. It's just another kind of enslavement, a different expression of subjugation. In other words, and as I pointed out, I think this is important. Paul frames this discussion not in terms of an ought to, but in terms of a get to. It's not that we have to abstain from sexual immorality. It's that we get to abstain from it. Our freedom in Christ is not expressed in terms of our ability to continue in sin, since as Paul explains, sin is actually harmful to us. It's expressed, rather, in our freedom from sin. This is something that people often get turned around. They think that God is the tyrannical one, issuing commands that are clearly designed to inhibit the full expression of our happiness, when in reality it's just the other way around. God is the one who has our best interest at heart. It's our sin that enslaves and destroys us. Paul clearly understands this. And so that's how he tackles this misapplication of grace here. He affirms the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice to cover all our sin, while at the same time explaining that we should still repent from sin. Now the question becomes, in what way does sexual immorality specifically frustrate the Christian's desires? In what way does it enslave us? This is the question that Paul addresses in the rest of this passage. And in this section, he attacks the Corinthians' understanding of knowledge. Really, he attacks their pride. He shows how much they don't know, but he does this by explaining how their understanding 
of sexual immorality reveals a grave deficiency in their theological knowledge, in particular in their understanding of the implications of Christ's resurrection. If you note here, three different times, Paul writes this question, do you not know? You see it in verse 15, verse 16, and again in verse 19. That's a clearly rhetorical question. And it's one that's meant to sting, actually. The implication is that the Corinthians really ought to know this. They ought to realize this already. And so the whole idea is that they can just engage in sexual immorality uh, all they want because it's not a big deal. It's really just a sign of their spiritual ignorance, of how far they still need to grow in their faith. I think you really need to read this in light of what we covered back in chapter 2 to feel the impact of these questions. You'll recall that the Corinthians think Paul simple. They think that he didn't seem to have the theological nuance of a guy like Apollos. And at the time, Paul explained that he couldn't get into the deeper realities of our faith with them because they still hadn't mastered the basics. Well, right here, Paul is just unleashing on the Corinthians in order to make this point. He's taking what he perceived to be some really basic concepts, and he's applying it to this subject and going, wait wait a second, do you not know? I mean, have you not made this connection? This is the admonishment of of a father to his children. And it's designed to humble the Corinthians so that they'll receive his instruction. However, these questions are not only intended to humble the Corinthians, they also provide us with a fairly solid outline for this text. So why should the Christian abstain from sexual immorality or to frame it another way? How does our theology shape our understanding of sexual sin? Paul provides the answer for us here. And I think we can state that answer in the form of two propositions. And of course, I mean that in the sense of a logical proposition, a sort of an if A and if B then C kind of a thing, because I think that's what's taking place in this passage. There's a progression of thought wherein Paul states a conclusion in verses 13 and 14. And then in verses 15 through 20, he's providing the explanation that supports that conclusion. And that explanation can be summarized in the form of two propositional statements. Now, I imagine you may wonder, well, why not three? After all, I just said that these questions provide us with an outline for this passage, and there's three of these do-you-not-know statements, so why are there only two propositional statements, not three? I think you'll see that's because the third question is really just providing supporting evidence for what Paul's already said. If I could put it this way, Paul is going to summarize his explanation with a command in verse 18 about what we should do in light of the first two propositions. And then he's going to issue the third question in verse 19 to emphasize and underscore his point. So I think it's best to see the development of Paul's argument in the form of two logical propositions. These two points are fairly simple once you understand the basic theological foundation they're built on. But before we jump into these points, I just want to remind you one more time of one incredibly important idea that I shared with you in our last message on this text. Because without this concept, I think it's going to be very hard to grasp the the logic of what Paul is saying here. And what I want you to remember is the fact that Paul is assuming that the Corinthians want to be pleasing to God. This is partly why I say that this is more complicated than thinking that the Corinthians believe they can sin with impunity. Throughout this entire passage, and I think really this entire letter, there seems to be the assumption that the Corinthians really do want to be pleasing to God, but they have some pretty confused notions about how that's expressed. Paul's making that assumption here. Again, he's just stated that sexual immorality is not profitable, that it's not helpful, and so to be engaged in sexual morality is an expression of our freedom in Christ, which the Corinthians obviously misunderstand, but rather as an expression of our enslavement to sin. He's now about to explain how sexual immorality is not profitable. And the basic premise is going to be 
that sexual sin is unprofitable because it places us under a kind of servitude to someone other than Christ. Now, wait a minute, you might be thinking. I, I thought you said that Paul more or less agreed that our sin doesn't affect our relationship with God. And so, in a sense, we're not obligated to obey, at least not in terms of earning any kind of favor from God. So then, why would he now say that the problem with sexual sin is that it places us in a kind of servitude to someone other than Christ? Hasn't Christ set us free from any kind of obligation to the law? Well, yes and no. Yes, he has set us free in the sense that we're not obligated to the law in order to achieve a right standing before God. To quote Paul from Romans 10:4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. We are not obligated to obey in that sense since Christ achieves that standard for us. Indeed, we will never even be able to fulfill that kind of an obligation. Galatians 3.10, right? For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it's written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide all the things in the book of the law and do them. We can't fulfill the law in that sense. And yet this doesn't mean that there's still not an obligation to obey God. This isn't an obligation that flows out of our own personal status in relationship with God, meaning it's not an obligation that we keep in order for God to approve us and give us eternal life. It's an obligation, rather, that flows out of the worth and glory of God, meaning that regardless of one's own acceptance by God, one should still obey Him because God is worthy of it. And what's happened to the Christian is that through the Holy Spirit, they've been transformed to obey God, not for the first of these reasons, not in order to achieve eternal life, but for the second of these reasons. Meaning, again, they obey God not because they have to, but because they want to. And this not necessarily because of any personal benefit that they necessarily derive from their obedience, though, of course, God does tend to promise reward for those who obey, but still, even independent of this, they obey not just because of what they're going to receive, but because of what they've already received. It's an expression of their gratitude towards God because of what they've received in Jesus Christ. To put it simply, they obey. Why? They obey because they love God. It doesn't have to go any further than that. It's not because they think they must in order to earn approval from God. Rather, it's because God has already accepted them, and they love Him for it. To quote 1 John 4, 10, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And again, 1 John 5, 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Paul assumes all of this at the outset. And I want you to understand this because otherwise this isn't going to sound like a very convincing argument that he's going to provide for us. Paul is going to say sexual immorality isn't profitable. And you're going to go, okay, why not? And he's going to say because it doesn't honor Christ. And if you don't love Christ, if that's not the motivation of your heart, then your answer is going to be, Okay, and what else? I mean, I don't get it. How is that unprofitable for me? And the answer is that that is unprofitable for you if the motivating desire of your heart is to be pleasing to Christ because of what He's done for you. You understand, Paul doesn't say avoid sexual immorality because you might contract an STD. He doesn't say, like Solomon does in the Proverbs, avoid sexual morality because it will rob you of your wealth, your reputation, and perhaps even your life. Instead, he says, avoid sexual immorality because it doesn't honor Christ. And that's only going to be motivating to you if you love Christ. In other words, now might be a really good time to do a heart check. If you struggle with sexual sin, and the explanation that Paul provides here isn't convincing, if it isn't motivating, 
then it might be a really good time to ask yourself, do I love Christ? It might even be a good time to ask yourself, do I know Christ? Have I been born again? And just to be clear, I don't say that in order to try to guilt you into loving Christ, because after all, that's not even possible. Ultimately, the only way you can grow in your love for God is if God himself supplies you with that love. It's not something you work yourself up to. It's given by grace, and it comes as you understand the gospel, right? In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is where love comes from. So please don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to guilt you. I'm simply trying to help you take assessment of what's really going on in your heart. So that if something's off here, that you would be motivated to seek those avenues that God has set in place to grow in your love for Christ. I'm referring, of course, to prayer, to time in God's Word, fellowship with the body of Christ, and of course, even reflection on the gospel itself. I said it last time, and I'll say it again. If you're going to find lasting repentance when battling against sins like sexual immorality, it's going to come by loving Christ more than the sin itself. Mere self-control is good, but it can only take you so far. Temptation is going to come, and when it comes, if there's not a greater desire pushing back against it that outweighs and counteracts that desire, eventually you're going to give in. For the Christian, that greater desire is found in their love for Christ. It's found in their desire to be pleasing to Him. So if you're falling short in this area and you're struggling with sexual sin, the first place to begin is by going back to the basics and seek to grow in your love for Christ. Since it's as your love for Christ grows that your resistance to sexual sin will also grow. That is, at least if you understand what Paul is explaining here. Because right here, Paul shows us how sexual immorality works counter to our desire to be pleasing to Christ. So if we want to be pleasing to Christ, then this thought right here should be sufficient to discourage this sort of conduct. Now, I realize that's all a lot of setup here this morning. Uh, but hopefully it sort of primes the pump and gets you ready to digest what Paul is about to show us here. And I personally think what Paul shows us here is really cool. It's really, really fascinating. So what is it about the nature of sexual immorality that makes it so unprofitable for the Christian? The answer can be stated in the form of two propositions. And the first proposition is this. Number one, because the body has been redeemed for, the serv for service to Christ. Once again, sexual immorality is unprofitable because the body has been redeemed for service to Christ. Now, again, I don't want you to misunderstand what's happening here. This is just the first half of Paul's argument, meaning if this proposition was the only proposition, then one might have room to say that sexual immorality really isn't so bad after all. And you might wonder how that might work. We'll get there in just a moment. All I want you to understand right now is that the body has been redeemed for service to Christ. There are a few uh, different interpretive challenges in this passage. Not the least of which is the one that occurs in verse 13. You'll notice that there's a statement set in quotation marks at the beginning of that verse. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Uh, just so you know, those quotation marks don't exist in the Greek. Uh, the Greek language didn't actually have quotation marks at this time. Quotations were more implied by the text rather than marked explicitly. So what's happening here is that it's generally assumed that Paul is quoting some kind of Corinthian saying at the beginning of verse 13. What isn't clear is how far that saying extends. Meaning, does it stop after the second occurrence of this word food in verse 13, as is implied by the ESV? Or does it go longer? Or to be more specific, does it encompass the entire saying, including, and God will destroy both one and the other? This probably seems like a rather insignificant question to wrestle with, but it's actually fairly notable 
not only because of its theological implications, but because of how it shapes the way we understand Paul's argument here. You see, as we continue through verses 13 and 14, we begin to discover that the reason why Paul takes issue with sexual immorality is because of the resurrection. This seems to be at the root of the Corinthians' misunderstanding of sexual immorality. Keep in mind that Corinth was essentially a Greek city with a very Greek way of looking at the world. And of course, the Corinthian believers were saved out of this culture, meaning they would have naturally sympathized with this Greek way of looking at the world. Well, the Greeks didn't have a notion of a physical resurrection. In fact, they found that idea laughable, quite literally. If you want to see a great example of this, you can turn to Acts 17. Uh, Acts 17, uh, Paul is on Mars Hill in Athens preaching the gospel. This is right before he travels to Corinth, mind you. Uh, these cities are very close to one another, just over 40 miles apart. So we're talking closer than from here to Springfield. And things are, are more or less going all right in Paul's sermon until he finally gets around to Christ's resurrection. You see this in verse 31. And then it says, verse 32, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. This was an absolutely ludicrous idea to the Greeks, to think that a person would be rewarded in the afterlife with the resurrection from the dead. And this all stemmed from various philosophical ideas that were prevalent in the Greek world at this time. But the long and the short of it was that they more or less understood the physical world to be a very imperfect ex expression of the spiritual world. And so the idea that a person would level up, so to speak, in some kind of physical, corporeal form after death seemed kind of crazy to them. It went against everything they understood to be intellectually respectable and sound at this time. Well, it would appear that the Corinthians shared some of these sentiments. In fact, by the time we get to chapter 15, we'll see that these sentiments are even being expressed in the denial of Christians' resurrection from the dead. In fact, what's really interesting is that Paul is even going to have to spend some time there explaining we are raised from the dead, but you need to understand the resurrection body isn't physical in the same way that our body is physical. Instead, it's a kind of heavenly body, a spiritual body, and that's all stemming from the Corinthians' hesitation to accept the idea of a bodily resurrection from the dead. The way that's all coming out here with respect to sex is in one of two responses, both of which could be found in Greek culture. Either A, the body is bad, and so therefore every form of sexual relationship is bad. It's base, it's vulgar, it's earthly, and so it should be avoided entirely. That's more of the thought we're going to find when we get to chapter 7. Or B, the body is passing away, right? So who cares what we do with our bodies? Basically use them and abuse them, right? Because whatever we do against our bodies is meaningless in the end. It's all passing away. That's more of the thought that we're encountering here in chapter 6. Paul is countering this thought with the notion of the resurrection. You see this from this parallel that occurs with this statement in verse 13, where the stomach and food are being destroyed by God. In this statement in verse 14, where Paul says that God raised the Lord and will raise us up by His power. The whole idea is that the Lord has already redeemed our bodies through the resurrection of Christ. And so we need to use our bodies in service to the Lord. Essentially, Paul is responding to this second line of thought that the body is passing away. So who cares, right? He's responding to that by saying that we, what we do with our bodies is not meaningless since our bodies are not passing away. They're being preserved. The challenge that arises is that if Paul is saying with reference to the stomach and food, if Paul is saying, with reference to these things, and God will destroy both one and the other, as the ESV implies, when it ends the quotation after that second occurrence of food, 
then not only is Paul seemingly contradicting some of what we know about the resurrection body from other passages in Scripture. I'm thinking specifically of Luke 24, where the resurrected Lord eats a piece of broiled fish. But even more than this, his whole argument seems to then hinge on the future functions of the resurrection body. In other words, he would, he's basically agreeing with this second line of thinking, which says, it doesn't matter what we do with our bodies since they're perishing in the end. But he's doing this only with reference to stomach and food, since they're passing away. The body as a whole, on the other hand, survives, and so we need to be careful what we do with our bodies. The problem that arises with that line of thought is that it would seem to imply that the resurrection body will engage in sexual relationship, since Paul is clearly indicating that sexual immorality does matter. Are you following me here? I know this is a little tricky. If he's saying what matters with your use of the body is determined by the kind of resurrection body we'll experience, so stay away from sexual immorality, then the whole idea seems to be that this will be a function of our resurrection bodies. And not only does that seem logically inconsistent with the idea of eternal life, when human reproduction is no longer needed to subdue and fulfill the earth, but even more than this, Jesus seems to state pretty explicitly that we will not engage in sex in the resurrection when he notes that men and women will not marry or be given in marriage, but will rather, quote, be like angels in Matthew 22, 30 and Mark 12, 25. In other words, if Paul is agreeing with the idea that there's going to be an end to the stomach and food in the resurrection, then not only is he seemingly playing into this whole line of Greek philosophy that actually runs counter to the Judeo-Christian understanding of the body, but even more than this, he's presenting a picture of the resurrection body that's the exact opposite of what we find in Jesus' teachings. Eating is being put to an end, while sexual activity is being preserved when it's really the other way around. So contrary to what the ESV implies, I don't think that Paul is owning the second half of this quote. I think the entire quotation is a Corinthian saying, they're saying God will destroy both the stomach and food, so do what you want with the body. And Paul is countering this entire idea with a parallel statement that reframes this idea in light of Christ's resurrection. And just in case you're wondering, that's the actual textual reason I'd give for my position on this. You can see here in verses 13 and 14 that Paul provides a parallel statement to the one you find at the beginning of verse 13. It makes the most sense to see the entirety of these two statements in opposition to one another. That Paul is saying, actually, God is not going to destroy the body. He has instead redeemed the body through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I understand that difference may seem subtle, but it's important. It's important because it changes the whole logic of Paul's argument. Paul is not saying, what you do here in the present with your body should be shaped by what you will do with it in the future in the resurrection. Instead, he's saying simply, what you do with your body matters because Christ redeemed your body. You follow me there? It doesn't matter whether or not an activity is for this age only or for both this age and the next. Whatever it is, if it involves the body, then we need to do it for the glory of the Lord since the Lord has redeemed our bodies. And this includes what we eat, by the way. That's another part of what seems so problematic with the idea that Paul would affirm the second half of this statement, as if it didn't matter what we eat. Because later in this same letter, he's going to imply the opposite when he says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whatever we do with our bodies matters, not just sexual immorality. Because Christ has redeemed our bodies. All in all, this is a fairly significant aspect of Christian doctrine with way more implications than we can get into here this morning, though I think perhaps it's a doctrine that is simultaneously overlooked and taken for granted at the same time. It's taken for granted in the sense that I doubt very many Christians would echo the sentiments expressed here by the Corinthians. If anything, I think this is one of those passages that's so divorced from where the average Christian is philosophically, that it can almost seem impractical and hollow. 
I mean, who in their right mind would go for this? We might be tempted to think. How immature do you have to be to think that God doesn't care what you do with your body? And yet you find echoes of this thought in various forms of uh, Christian eschatology, for instance. I know I use that word eschatology a lot. I use it because you need to know what it means. It's a study of the end times. And it's not uncommon even today for Christians to adopt an understanding of our eternal destiny that's incredibly Greek in its perception of the body. Let me give an example. Have you ever been presented with a picture of heaven where the Christian exists as a disembodied soul in an almost static state of perpetual contemplation of God? If so, do you know where that understanding of heaven comes from? It's not the Bible. It's Greek philosophy, and it's forced onto the Bible, even in texts like this one. I've, I've actually had to be very discerning as I've worked my way through these commentaries on this section, because you'll find a lot of the same Greek thinking on the body creep into you know, co- uh, commentators' takes on this passage, and it can garble what Paul is saying here. In fact, I was actually more confused about this passage after running through some commentaries on this text than when I started. Uh, The logic in what they were saying seemed very forced and unclear, and it took me a while before I finally realized that the reason why was because they actually agree with the Corinthians. (laughs) And they're trying to make Paul say something he doesn't say. Christians can also fail to make this connection concerning the body when it comes to counseling. They'll think Christianity only applies to the area of the soul, and that we need to stay in our place when questions come up concerning the body. And that's not entirely true. Of course, you know, a pastor is not a doctor. Those two shouldn't be confused. And yet this is not to say that the Bible doesn't have anything to say about the body either. Christ has redeemed both. And so we need to have a biblically informed approach to the body as well as the soul. We can't elect to just stay out of it. And there's much, much more that we could say about all this. But the point is that this is incredibly significant what Paul is saying here. We can't take it for granted, and we can't overlook it. As Christians, we believe that there are two essential parts to man. There is his physical being and his spiritual being. He is made up of both body and soul. And when Christ redeems us, he redeems all of us, both body and soul. There's there's nothing wrong with our bodily existence. When God created man in bodily form, he looked upon us and declared that we were very good. We shouldn't think, therefore, that there's something wrong with that part of our existence or even that God is apathetic about it. No, He wants us to glorify Him with our bodies. I said that Paul starts his argument with his conclusion. You see that conclusion at the end of verse 13 when he says, The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. He's countering this idea that what we do with the body is irrelevant since the body is going to be destroyed, stating instead that it has been redeemed to be used in service to Christ. Of course, the specific use of the body in question here is sexual immorality. And Paul begins to explain why sexual immorality specifically is problematic in light of this particular aspect of our redemption with this first do you not know statement in verse 15. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ to make the members of a prostitute? Never. With this verse, Paul takes us back to an incredibly familiar theme, one which we've been discussing quite a bit lately in this section of 1 Corinthians, and that's our union with Christ. We talked about this concept as recently as verses 9 through 11, and of course it played a major role in our discussion of chapter 5. The doctrine of union with Christ means that when we identify with Christ through faith, we become united to Him spiritually. You see this come out in the next part of Paul's argument when he says in verse 17, But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And it's a point that he explains even further when he says in verse 19, with this third, do you not know statement? Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? This is how our union with Christ is formed. It's through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit who indwells all believers at the point of faith. And the result is that because of this union, there's a sense in which what happens to Christ 
happens to all of us, and vice versa. You see this idea emerge throughout various points of Scripture. I think of Matthew 25, for instance, where Jesus tells those at the sheep and goat judgment with respect to the care that they express to the church, specifically during the tribulation. He says, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Typically, we think about it, when we think about our union with Christ, we think of it in light of how Christ's actions affect us. Meaning we think of how his obedience is ascribed to us. Because he is righteous, we get to share in his inheritance. In fact, if you're following the logic here, this is even why we can expect to participate in the resurrection. It's because Christ has been raised from the dead. And so since his body has been raised, we can expect that ours will be too, since we're in union with him. This is probably what Paul is referring to when he notes in verse 13, that not only is the body meant for the Lord, but the Lord for the body. He's referring to this notion of union with Christ, and it's on, the, and it's the, on the, uh, the basis of what he says in verse 14, that since God has raised the Lord, he will also raise us up by his power. It's really interesting. You see this come out in chapter 15 when Paul responds to the Corinthians' denial of the resurrection of the saints. <laughs> he, he responds to that denial by saying, you don't understand, if we're not raised, then it means Christ isn't raised. The whole idea is that since Christ is raised... We must be raised too. That's built on this notion of union with Christ. It's inescapable. If he's been raised, we must be raised. And this is typically how we think of this concept in terms of how Christ's actions affect us. However, what we can't forget is how this works the other way too. That's the point in Matthew 25, right? Love for the church is understood to be an expression of love for Christ. Likewise, when Jesus goes to the cross, it's not for his sins, right? But for ours. We aren't just given his riches, he takes on our debts as well. Well, it's this very idea that Paul is jumping on when he says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. This is fascinating stuff here, especially when viewed in light of what Paul says about the Holy Spirit down in verse 19. The whole idea is that since our bodies serve as the dwelling place of the Spirit, and since our spirits have been united with Christ through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that means that not just our souls, but also our very bodies, they're seen as an extension of Christ himself. Let that sink in for a minute. We are not one body with Christ. Paul seems very intentional in not making that connection. Jesus possesses a bodily existence that's independent of our own, meaning we are still individuals. We're distinct persons from Christ. And yet through this union that we enjoy with Him, through the Spirit, there's still a sense in which even our bodies should be seen as an extension of Christ here on earth. In this verse, Paul even refers to our bodies as his members. Like, I know it's sort of cliche, but if you've ever heard of someone say, we are Christ's hands and feet, that's really sort of the picture that Paul is painting here. The question then becomes, shall I take the members of Christ and make the members of a prostitute? Paul says never. But why does he say never? Why is sexual immorality such a big deal? We discover the answer in our second proposition, which is sexual sin places the body in service to someone other than Christ. Sexual sin is unprofitable because it places the body in service to someone other than Christ. Friends, I'll tell you, if you can grasp the significance of this point, then I think you're going to understand the concerns that we're about to encounter in chapter 7 a whole lot better and why the Corinthians were taking some of the positions that we'll see them take here beginning next week. Paul continues this, do you not, do you not know series of statements 
in verses 16 and 17. He says, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, The two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. I think we've already covered what Paul means when he says, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. What we need to now unpack is what he means when he says in verse 16, or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. I think part of the meaning is right there on the surface. You probably don't even need me to spell it out for you. In the act of sex, the bodies of the two individuals are united. I think it's worth pointing out, by the way, through this contrast with the kind of union that we enjoy with Christ that Paul makes here, that this is strictly a physical union. I want to point that out, by the way. That will become important as we get into chapter 7. There's this argument out there that says that Christians can't remarry after they divorce which is part of the subject that we're going to tackle in chapter 7. And this is an argument that's largely built on the idea that at marriage we are spiritually united with our spouse and that this is a bond that we share with our spouse until the point of death. I mean, forget the logical flaws in that kind of thinking. It's just flat out not biblical. You're not going to find it in Scripture, this idea of a spiritual union like that. For instance, Paul is very clear here there is a kind of union that's enjoyed when the marriage is consummated, but it's a union that's qualitatively different than the spiritual union we enjoy with Christ. And that is a strictly physical one. Our bodies are joined. So, re returning to the subject of sexual immorality, what's the big deal about that? What's the big deal about the bodies being joined physically? Well, the big deal is that when the Christian engages in sex with the prostitute... They're uniting their body to someone who is unclean. And I mean that in the ceremonial sense, the spiritual sense. I'm not talking about hygiene or STDs or something like that. I mean it in the sense that they're uniting their body, which, that which has been sanctified unto Christ, with a body that is still unholy. The problem becomes even worse once you start to peel back some of the layers behind this union and what it represents. For instance... Do you remember how Paul said up in verse 12, All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything? When we talked about that text, I presented it in light of this idea that when we continue to do that which is harmful to us, that this isn't freedom, that it's just another kind of enslavement. That's how I kind of presented this idea of being dominated. Well, there actually may be more going on here than just that. The word for enslaved there, is a form of the Greek word exousiazo, which means to have or exercise power. Exousiazo. And Paul uses it only one other time in all of his letters. And you know where that is? It's down in chapter 7, verse 4, when he says, For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. The word for authority in that verse is the same word, exousiazo. And the idea is that when a person enters into a marriage covenant, they essentially surrender their rights to their body, to their spouse. Now, before you get ahead of me and start asking all these questions, I know there's questions about things like marital rape and the like, if those thoughts even pop into your head. But just hold tight if that's what you start to wonder about when I say that. We'll get there eventually. Suffice to say for the moment that by this, I don't think that Paul is justifying various types of marital abuse when he makes that statement. Just the opposite, actually. We'll get there. The only connection that I want you to make right now is that there's a sense in which when a person enters into a sexual relationship, they're giving their body to that person. And in giving them their body, they're allowing them to exercise a kind of authority over it. We even sometimes acknowledge this in our own culture. We'll speak of sex in this way. We'll speak of giving ourselves to the other person. This is perhaps what Paul is implying when he says, I will not be dominated by anything. He's alluding to the fact that in sex, the person isn't just uniting with their sexual partner. 
but they're actually giving their bodies to them to be used for their pleasure and satisfaction. And he's saying when you're engaged in illicit sex, you're giving that right to your sexual partner rather than to Christ, who redeemed your body. Can you see why that might be a problem? When the resurrection indicates that our bodies are now owned by Christ and to be used for his purposes? Now, again, I think I probably need to be clear here. I'm most definitely not saying that when the Christian is engaged in illicit sex that they somehow defile Christ by their actions or something like that. Again, Paul is careful to point out here that we don't share the same body with Christ. We're united in spirit with Christ, not in body. So it's not as if the Christian is joining Christ himself to the prostitute when they visit the prostitute. Rather, the point is that they're defiling their own body by using it for something other than its intended purpose. This is what Paul means when he says in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Listen, the body has been redeemed for a higher purpose than union with and service to a prostitute. It's been sanctified for service unto Christ. And so whenever the Christian engages in this kind of sexual sin, they actually harm themselves through the degradation of their bodies. This is what Paul means when he says that sexual immorality isn't profitable. It isn't helpful. All in all, it's not entirely unlike what we encounter in Romans 1 when Paul describes man's descent into sin And as he gets into God's judgment against sin, he says in verses 24 through 27, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. He says, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up their natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. There's this sin taking place in the earth. And Paul says that God hands mankind over to sexual sin as an act of judgment. In other words, he sees engagement in sexual sin as a penalty not a reward. In this particular context, it's a form of degradation wherein God is allowing the person's body to catch up with the state of their soul. Here in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul's basically saying the same thing, but in reverse. It's like what we've seen earlier in chapter 6. The Corinthians used to be sexually immoral, but now that they're in Christ, they are such no longer. They've been washed, they've been sanctified, they've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of their God. And so now they need their bodies to catch up with the state of their soul, which they do not by degrading their bodies with sexual immorality, but by setting them apart for service to Christ. I hope that this is all very eye-opening for you, Christian. Going back to where we started in this morning's message, in fact, going back to where we started in this passage two weeks ago, the most important thing about you is what you believe about God. And that's because what you believe about God will shape literally everything you do. Or to put it another way, Christian doctrine shapes Christian culture. Well, the doctrine that Paul is spelling out right here in this passage says that even though Christ's sacrifice is sufficient to cover all our sin, We should avoid sexual immorality. Not simply because we have to, not simply because we must in order to achieve a right standing before God, but because sexual immorality actually harms us. It takes that which has been redeemed by Christ and set apart for a special purpose, a higher purpose, and it drags it through the mud. It degrades our bodies. And why would you let it do that to you, Christian? Why would you let the prostitute rob you of what Christ has redeemed for you through his blood. What this passage shows us is that worship isn't just something we can do anywhere, 
It's something that we can do with anything. We don't just worship in our spirit, but with our very flesh and blood as well, with our bodies. And so the next time you're facing sexual temptation and you're wondering whether or not to give in, I would encourage you to remember what Paul says here as he closes out this passage. Remember that you are not your own, for you are bought with a price. And so glorify God in your body. Let's pray.